right. Hey, guys. Good to see you today. Um, it is back. Questions you never thought you could ask in church. Some of you, one of you is a veteran to this. Some of you are veterans to this. Some of you who are uninitiated, here is how it works and what today is about. This is the day where you get to pull out your phone. You got your phone on you? You pull it out and you get to text in any question you have on God, theology, the Bible, how it intersects with life, fellowship of faith, you name it. I am going to get them in real time on the spot, and I am going to do the best job I possibly can to give you a straightforward answer um, that hits the core of what you're asking. Now, before we jump in, I want you to read something, and this is central to who we are at Fellowship of Faith and what's actually driving a lot of what today is about. Read this from our core values. You get it? You make it through? Guys, that's what church should be about. That's what church should be about. And, and I have met so many people who are churchgoers. Some Christians, some not. Some mature, some, some not in their faith. Who, who think that when they come to church, they need to put on a mask. They need to kind of put on a certain image of knowing the right things and believing the right things and having it together in all the right ways. And if something like a doubt or a fear, or an uncertainty is exposed, then the walls are going to come crushing in. You know, the path that Jesus calls us to is a path of truth, right? And that means we come here today with questions, uncertainties, doubts, struggles, about central things to God, about the way that we're interacting in life, right? And if we can't talk about those things as a church, then let's just close the doors right now because that's what God wants the church to be. And here's what all this means. I know that there are so many of you sitting here now with questions, probably questions that you have been carrying with you for a long time. And maybe you've been afraid to ask them. You've been afraid to ask them because you think someone's going to judge you we're not going to judge you. You're afraid to ask them because you think somehow it will reveal that, shoot, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I should know the answer to this, right? And it will reveal that somehow you're not perfect. Guess what? We know you're not perfect. Whatever your question is, crazy, heretical, punching to the core, shallow and superficial or deep and complex, it doesn't matter. I want to invite you right now to start texting your questions in to 815-314-0363. 815-314-0FOF. And we are going to take those in real time on the spot, and uh, it is in your hands. All right, so um, let's jump in. Is it more likely that Jesus' trial and crucifixion was a large event as depicted in movies or a small proceeding few people took note of? Really cool question. This is one that hasn't come in before. You know, it really comes down to a definition of what large and small actually means in your own mind. Fundamentally, we don't know. It doesn't say how many people were there, but we do know this. It was right outside Jerusalem during the time of Passover when the city swelled from 30,000 to 500,000 people. So there was a lot of people in the vicinity. We know this. 
religious leaders were there able to stand back behind people and scoff. It says people walked by and mocked. It said guards had to be placed there in order to guard the bodies. It says disciples were there, and that doesn't just mean the, the 11 as you think about it, but, but various followers of Jesus, including um, his mother and some of the women that, 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 that followed him and built into his ministry. So I don't know what your definition of large is. Do I think this was like Superdome kind of event? Probably not. But it was certainly more, it seems, than just a small few. Great question. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Um, where do you think heaven is? Great one. We're always kind of inclined to go, it's, it's up there, right? But have you ever thought, like, where do people in Australia point? Um, here's the easiest way to answer that. Where is heaven? It's where God is. Period. See, heaven is not some amazing piece of real estate that some broker like gave, gave God a secret deal on and he happened to find. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God because everything that's good and joyful and peaceful and filled with love and grace and compassion, all these, these, these things that we like that describe heaven for us, those emanate from God like body odor comes off me, all right? I mean, they are, they are of his Vivid image for heaven there, right? Uh, they, they are of his essence. So the closer you come into the presence of God, the closer you come to, shall we say, heaven. And this is why when, when it says that God's going to come down on the last day, heaven, therefore, comes to earth. Make sense? Hopefully. Great one. Let's keep going. Did Jesus have a girlfriend? I don't know. <laughs> he may have. I'll tell you this, he was human. So because he was human, I'm sure there was this. There was a girl he liked, probably got his heart broken, probably had a crush, maybe several. Does that fit your conception of Jesus, or is that like off-limits for Jesus? And if it is off-limits for Jesus, what does that have to say about your understanding of sexuality? Marriage relationships, love, romance, these are good things. And if Jesus was human, whether he dated in our 21st century concept of the term, I doubt it, but whether he liked someone or something was ever there, the Bible is silent, but I think it is certainly within the realm of possibility. All right. Under what circumstances does God forgive divorce? Under what circumstances does God forgive divorce? under the same circumstances that God forgives every sin. The circumstances under which God forgives a sin is repentance. Jesus died for you and for your sins. Divorce is not something that God wants. It's not part of his design. With the exception of a few circumstances, God says don't do it. And look, let's, let's face it. Many of us here are divorced Many of us here have lived through that pain. Many of us here have struggled with, with the guilt, the hardship, the pain that comes from that, right? And I'm here to tell you, God says, just, just come to me, seek me. Whatever the circumstances may have been, bring it to me. I am a God who is gracious and compassionate. No matter how big your sin, God forgives the repentant sinner. Why does the LCMS not allow women 
to be pastors. Because they're wrong. Is that one going on the audio file, Mark? <laughs> no, let, let me get into it a little bit more. You know, um, and, and with all sincerity, so, so the church body that we belong to does, uh, does not practice women ordination, female ordination. You know, this is a divided topic among God-fearing, mature, Bible-believing Christians. And have you ever noticed that the Bible is not always black and white? Sometimes there's topics and issues where you can see how people come to two different points of view. And within the, let me say, Bible-believing world, there's two basic positions on this. One is called egalitarian, one is called complementarian, okay? Egalitarian is basically what men can do, women can do, no distinctions, boom, it's just, just every, everything to all. Complementarian um, is... is very similar in approach, but they say that within God's design of, of gender, he has put in certain roles that are reserved or, or, or kept to one gender alone with the pastoral office, if I can use that term, being restricted to male only. A bunch of Bible-believing Christians who formed this denomination were reading passages like 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, and they were coming to this position. However, there are many other congregations and, and, and church bodies in this world that love the Bible equally, that also know it very well, that say, we don't think you're interpreting it right, and hence the debate begins. Here's my encouragement to you. Don't be too quick to judge the other side. Listen to what they have to say. Be willing to open yourself to the other position and wrestle through the scriptures critically. And at the end of the day, don't let a pastor or a denomination or some book tell you what's right and wrong. Go to the scriptures and you ask yourself, what do I think they say? Or where do I think they lead most clearly? And let that inform me at the end of the day. And love each other. Love each other either way. Great one. Does, let me see, i got to open this one more. Does the Holy Spirit still give the spiritual gifts that were given to the apostles? Healing, prophecy, tongues, etc. Uh, yes, I believe he does. Um, and, and as always, especially in the apostolic era like today, I believe he gives them when and where he pleases. I see no evidence in the scripture that supernatural gifts somehow ceased in the first hundred years surrounding the time of Christ. And from the testimonies I hear from missionaries, from things I've seen firsthand, and what I've seen God doing in other believers, I have seen God manifesting those, what we would kind of think of as glamour gifts, um, here in this world today. It's a great topic to deal in more of, of why, why and where and how does this work and how do you know, and, and I'd love to answer more texts on that, but let me just keep it there for simplicity and time today. Maybe one more thing. It's really easy to view a certain gift as being better than another. To think that a certain gift is somehow evidence that, well, this person's like spiritual giant, right? But, but well, man, you got the gift of mercy. Who wants that? You know what I'm saying? God gives the gifts when and where he pleases, and all are necessary. I don't care if they're sexy or not. All are necessary for the health of the church and God's mission in this world. And you know what God says the greatest gift of all is? 
love. I want healing. He says love. I want to be able to raise the dead. He says love. I think speaking in tongues like rocks. He says love. And Paul will write, pursue that greater gift. Okay. What exactly does it mean to take God's name in vain? What exactly does it mean to take God's name in vain? Um, the phrase to take his name in vain, it comes out of, out of an older translation of the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Modern translations will put it this way oftentimes. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Now, the problem most believers make is they reduce taking God's name in vain to like saying God plus the four-letter word of your choice, right? Find your appropriate swear word, add God, or use God's name as an expletive, and that somehow is taking his name in vain. Well, it certainly is. But it's not restricted just to that. Because to take it in vain is also to take it casually, lightly, irreverently. When you see the scriptures talk about God's name, it holds God's name up as something holy and sacred and powerful and that should actually create an effect within us. And that when we use his name and tell people about him, we become bearers of his name. And therefore, everything we do becomes a reflection on his name. And therefore, that shouldn't be taken lightly either. Do you see how it just mushrooms out and how it is so much bigger than this narrow thing right there? To treat God's name as holy is to treat God as holy almost as if they're one in the same. And that everything you do, everything you say, every way you act as one who is known by the term Christian or by the cross you wear around your neck, that it brings glory to him and not shame. Dang, good luck keeping that one. Where did the Bible start? I'm not exactly sure where you're getting that. It, Genesis, um, like what, send me back on that, clarify. What religion would Jesus be if he were here today? A Jew. Because what Jesus came to do was to fulfill everything that Judaism was supposed to be about. Jesus, to my knowledge, was never called a Christian. In fact, the New Testament evidence itself would say that the first Christians didn't go by the name Christian. The term Christian is helpful because it makes a, a distinction today, but, but guys, to be a Christian is to be a part of Israel. We are Israel. And this is different than Judaism as it exists today, but it's out of that deep Israelite, Judaic, Hebraic stream of belief and conception and thought that, that, that Jesus was and practiced and and is, and as Gentiles, German-Italian right here, we are what Romans would say, grafted into that tree. That probably opens more questions. You can text back. When you go to your employer who has wronged you, and you go as God has told you to, and they turn it into a worse situation and do not understand your Christian faith, that it, is it wrong to take legal action as a Christian? 
There's a few things packed in here, and let me try to sift. First, without knowing the situation, it's hard to give a formula that applies to every situation. Make sense? But I would say this. Taking legal action is not prohibited under all circumstances. There isn't a carte blanche, can't do that ever, no way, no how. However, like divorce, it comes in the Bible with a lot of caution. It comes in the Bible with a lot of caveat and ways and modes that it should never have to, but if it does, here's the way to do it. If you would like to talk more about this one one-on-one, come find me after the service, and we can kind of sift your thing together. But I will give some overarching principles. Number one, you're still obligated to love your employer. But loving your employer doesn't mean you have to stay employed with him. It's the benefit of the 13th Amendment in our country. Two, you're called to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't always mean turning a blind eye. Forgiveness doesn't mean saying, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter. But nonetheless, you are called to forgive. Three, anything that you do has to be motivated out of love of God, love of what's right, and love of your employer, even if he has become your enemy. Finally, don't compromise your integrity. Make sure if there's something wrong going on that it doesn't taint you, even if that means you have to leave your job. Well, what will I do? You'll do what martyrs have done for 2,000 years. Follow Christ and carry your cross. Talk to me more if you'd like. Is the earth actually hell? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. But you know, to approach this one, I think more technically in the way that you're asking, no, hell is something bigger than this earth, worse than this earth. Martin Luther had a great quote. I love this one. If you want to imagine heaven and hell and what the afterlife is going to look like, imagine your best dream and your worst nightmare, okay? Now imagine when judgment day comes, waking up to find that it was true. I think we get reflections of heaven here, just like we get reflections of hell here. I think there are shadows of hell in this earth, just like there's shadows of heaven, but this is not the complete, this is not the fullness, this is not the end-all, be-all of the hope that awaits or the terror that awaits on either side of the equation. What is the church's position on same-sex marriage? Tricky one to answer because you said, what is the church's position? It depends what church. There are some churches under the name of Christ today that, that to say advocate it might be too strong, but to say it is acceptable and permissible. There are some that don't. I believe that what the Bible teaches is that same-sex marriage is not permissible, that it is a sin. Um, because at a fundamental level, homosexual relations are a sin, and sex and marriage often go together. I know there's exceptions, I know there's caveats you can bring up to that, but I'll leave it at that for now and push it further if you'd like. Will God ever stop loving us? No. God will never stop loving you. Which I know is going to bring up this. So why does he send people to hell? God will never stop loving you. 
Parents, what happens if your 22-year-old son robs your house again and runs away for the 15th time in his life to spend it all in a crack house and he says, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, get out of my life. Do you stop loving him? I hope not. Do you let him go? Yeah. Because you can't stop him. God does not force people to love him. In hell is not about an angry God saying, you disappointment, get away from me. Hell is about fundamentally people saying, God, I want nothing to you, I want nothing to do with you, and I would rather live in hell than submit to your presence. I would rather live in hell, I'd rather live in misery, and as Revelation will put it, gnaw my tongue off in agony than repent. I think God loves people who choose to walk away and go to hell. And I think he never stops loving them. And imagine how heartbreaking that is for a God who loves his children, watching them insist on a path to ruin. But God will never, ever, ever stop loving you. Sorry. Did God have a middle name? I hope so. <laughs> that would be cool. Besides vigilant prayer, what can you do for a loved one who has fallen out of their faith? Keep the relationship open. You can't browbeat someone into faith. You can't ultimately convince them into faith. Fundamentally, they have to come on their own terms, but keep the relationship open. Don't be afraid of your faith in their presence. Don't hide it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't bury it. Don't go, it's awkward, I can't bring this up. If it's true to you, it's got to be true to you, and they've got to accept that, but don't shove it down their throat. Don't beat them over the head. Be willing to talk. Be willing to answer questions. Be willing to say, I don't know, and above all, love them. Because they know we are Christians, not because of our insane knowledge. They know we are Christians by our love. Love them. And be ready to do God's work when the time arises and let God do his work in that way. If God says the greatest gift is love, why is sacrifice, war, killing done to teach the love of God? I don't understand how taking a firstborn son or the sacrifice of animals, taking the innocence of life, is love. few ways i got to approach this. The reason animals are sacrificed is because God loves you. He would rather kill an animal than you, and God will slaughter 10 billion animals for you. That's what the entire sacrificial system is about. All these animals don't pale in comparison to the love God has for you. And I love animals. That's rough, right? That's how much God loves you. Sacrifice is the ultimate act of love. To lay down your life for your friend, Jesus says, is the epitome of love, and that's what he does for you. You don't die for just anyone. You die for those you love, and that's what Jesus has done for you. 
war, killing. Well, of course, it depends on the context, but ultimately, if war is done for the right reasons, it should be done out of love. If someone is terrorizing my kids, I will intervene because I love my kids. I will intervene and use whatever force is necessary to stop. If you love other people who are being oppressed, what you will see God doing at times is intervening in these ways. And that opens up some more questions on on the whole thing of Old Testament war. You can text back on it if you'd like, but get your mind just thinking on that. Let's see. Does celebrating Christmas and Easter on specific dates acknowledge the pagan rituals that existed prior? Doesn't this devalue these significant Christian events? Let's stick to Christmas on this one because Easter actually, despite being named after the goddess Ishtar, does nonetheless correspond to a Jewish holiday. So let's stick to Easter, or to Christmas. Um, I don't know if you know this, but um, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Um, The reason Jesus' birth got tied to December 25th is because in the Roman world at the time, they had a festival on the shortest day of the year. I know that's not the 25th. Go with it. On the shortest day of the year, it was a festival to um, the unconquered sun to translate it. It was was a festival to the sun and the sun god to say, as dark as it gets, the sun has not been defeated, and it's getting lighter now, and there's pagan festivals around this. When Constantine and, and, and the Roman Empire became Christian, they often took these holidays and said, let's superimpose them with a Christian meaning. And see, this is fundamentally what baptism does. Because what the Christian faith was about was not saying per se, reject all culture, reject all things, and start with something brand new. It's saying, let's bring God's redemptive life and water to a fallen world and renew it in something greater, bigger, and stronger that the, pagan, that the pagan rituals are just a shadow of. Let's bring the little glimmer of light that they had in a fog of darkness and explode it out to help people see. And I think it's an important lesson not just for holidays, but for culture in general. There are certain things the Bible forbids us to do. They are often in black and white. But there's many things in this world that can be used for good or ill, a holiday being one of them. And what God calls us to do in culture is to immerse it in his presence, to baptize it, if you will, to renew it and bring it into the good and the light and the truth of all that God is and should be. Keep going on that if you'd like more. Man, these are flying in. Do you personally feel Judgment Day is near. I'll give you the answer that I have to force myself to, and I will give you the honest answer. The honest answer first. No, I don't personally feel like Judgment Day is near. That doesn't mean I'm right. But I don't live my life as though Judgment Day is happening today, do you? To be straight up honest with you, I I don't live the way the Bible calls me to live. Because when Jesus talks about it, he'll talk about it as something near. Although at other times he'll talk about it as something that will delay. And fundamentally he'll go, be ready. You don't know when it's coming. Be 
ready. And sometimes I get personally afraid that I'm going to be like those, those five foolish virgins in the parable that has gotten so wrapped up in the things of this world, so lackadaisical and apathetic and bored and just so wrapped up in my life that I've ceased keeping watch with any sense of urgency. There's a conviction and a wake-up call in that to me. I hope there is to you as well, at least to do things the way Jesus sees. Here's one. Does God still want us to give 10% tithe or just give in general? God wants 100%. I'm not even playing around. He wants 100%. And not just of your money. Of your energy, of your passion, of your life, of your family. God does not make distinctions between God time and the rest of life time. He wants your whole life immersed in his work and will. And that doesn't mean becoming a church worker. Whatever you're doing in your life, to be immersed 100% in the things of God and being willing to give everything and risk everything for the furtherance of that cause, to be ready, to be sold out completely in. To reduce God to 10% is to reduce his call on you to a, a, a... a pathetic shadow of the sum total of what the call of discipleship means. Now, I know you're asking some practical questions here too. How should I be giving to deliberate church work, maybe? And of course, there the 10% is a good mark, but I'll tell you. God meets you where you're at, and he says, come follow me to the next step. Maybe don't give Jack. Maybe the first step for you is God going, start giving something. Take that next step out after me. And maybe you give sporadically. Then God's saying, come follow me, start giving regularly. And maybe you give regularly. God's saying, come follow me and give from the first portions in such a way that it, 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 it's, it's affecting you and not just leftovers. And maybe you're doing that, then God says, come follow me and start tithing. And maybe you're here tithing thinking, yeah, I'm a good Pharisee, I got it down. God says to you, Come, follow me. What is the next step in total, sold-out, biblical generosity? I bet most of you are asking someone didn't ask that question. What does God think about this Bruce Jenner thing? You know, it's always a frightening thing to try to climb into the mind of God when he hasn't revealed it explicitly. So what I have to do is resort to principles that will apply. What do I think God thinks about this Bruce Jenner thing? I think he thinks, Bruce, I love you, even if you call yourself Caitlin. Bruce, I love you, and I'll never stop. Bruce, I want a relationship with you, and I want you to come to me. No matter what your struggle, no matter what your issue, no matter what your sin. I think he thinks, Bruce, I get it. I actually get what it's like to wrestle with something like this. I get your pain, I get your fear. I get your struggle, I get your confusion. 
I get you better than you do. And I think he says, Bruce, trust me. So you might think this should be going one way, trust me, because I know who you are to the fiber of your being, and let, let me define you, Bruce. Not the gender you claim, the name you put on yourself, the hormones you pump through your body. Let me define you. I think God thinks, Bruce, whatever you've done, whoever you've become, come follow me and let me show you my way. That's what I think God thinks about it. Would the world be perfect if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the forbidden fruit? Don't you hate them? I mean, <laughs> you know, you ever just have someone, like, remember you're in school and there was always, that, like, one dude that couldn't shut his mouth and, like, the whole class lost recess? <laughs> Doesn't it just feel like cosmic scale with Adam and Eve? You know, I don't know. I'll give you my straight up on this. I think sin was inevitable. I think we're just way too messed up as a species. You know, we get this idea, I think, that the only way Adam and Eve could have sinned is by eating this fruit, right? So if only the tree weren't there, you know? What if Adam just got bored one day, picked up a rock, and smashed Eve in the head? You know, would that have been sin? Yeah, it would have been, okay? It, it would have been. And, and, and dudes named Adam, don't do that, okay? Um, there are any number of ways Adam and Eve could have sinned. The forbidden fruit is mentioned because that happens to be the way they did sin. And who knows what would have happened if that instance didn't come, but guys, my take is, I know what I'm like. If Adam and Eve didn't screw it up, I certainly would have for the rest of the class. And uh, you would have too. Couple more. Can, can we... Um, can we fight demons? And, and there's some, some parenthetical things. Can we normal believers, not necessarily supernaturally powered folk, fight demons? Guess what? You are supernaturally powered if you were in Christ. First John will say this. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Who is in you? The Holy Spirit. Who is the one in the world? Satan, demons, and the forces of hell. The one who is in you is greater than than the one who was in the world. That doesn't mean you won't be attacked. That doesn't mean you won't be oppressed. That doesn't mean that the demons won't put a full court press on you sometimes and rack your life like, like nothing you've seen. But the one who is in you is greater. And the greatest tool, weapon, if you will, is prayer in the word of God. Read Ephesians 6 sometime. It'll talk about this, this armor, this protection, this, this, this battle that you can engage in. And what God talks about is things like Faith, righteousness, the gospel, peace. And he says, arm yourself with these things because what the demons will do is exploit all those holes within you and take up the word of God to fight back and pray. This ain't just going, God, I want a cupcake someday. You know, it's saying, God, there's a war going on and, and this is ammunition. Fight for people because I tell you, forces of darkness, they're alive and active. And they're really good at being subversive too. I'll take this as related. Would God even forgive Lucifer? You know, Lucifer, the, the classic name given to, to Satan before he fell. 
Um, would God even forgive Lucifer? Two strains of thought. And ultimately, the Bible is silent. Strain of thought, one. No. No, what God has given to humanity, God did not give to the angels. What God has given to humanity is not open to the angels, so when they rebelled, there's no grace presence. There's, there's no sacrifice made, and so their condemnation is once and for all. Now, the pushback on that is that it often says that Jesus did not just die for humanity, that Jesus died for, as your translations will put it, the world, but as the Greek will put it, the cosmos. So that when Jesus died for the cosmos, Jesus died to redeem all of creation, and redemption is therefore offered to all of creation, which means it is at least theoretically possible that it can be extended to fallen angels too. But the issue is that what happens for people is the same for fallen angels. God might extend forgiveness to them at all times, but that doesn't mean they're taking it because there are some people and there are some beings that would rather defy God and spend an eternity in hell gnawing their tongue in agony, cast to the lake of fire, then turn and repent. It's a question that really opens up a lot of interesting sidelines into deeper biblical theology, and I can point you to a couple of books if you'd like that wrestle through this. Um, come find me afterwards, and, uh, and I can help you out. We're getting short on time here, and I've got like four billion questions, which just like rocks... So let me end with this one. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. John 6 is what it's quoting. What is the position of the Lutheran church on not taking the Eucharist every week as the body of Christ coming together in communion? So there's, there's, there's a few layers here we've got to unpack and let's start here. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no life in you. I don't believe in John 6 he's referring to this, and neither did Martin Luther for that matter. He argues in John 6 that what Jesus is talking about there is a very metaphorical way of saying faith in me. To eat my flesh and to drink my blood in John 6, in the context of John 6, is to come to faith in Christ. Now, the early Christian tradition, based more on Passover than those words of Jesus, though they certainly are harmonious, practice this meal, a Passover meal, a meal to remember the day when, when God rescued his people from Egypt, when he delivered and saved them, and the punishment wasn't brought upon their house. And Jesus reinterpreted that meal. And he took it and says, it's not a Passover lamb anymore. It is my body. It's my blood. He says on that night he was betrayed. Take, eat. This is my body given for you. And he takes a cup and he says, take and drink. This is my blood shed for you. And for centuries up until recent times, most believers understood that when we came to this meal here, it was something more than just a memory. It was something more than a Thanksgiving dinner to remember what, what, some, what happened long ago. That somehow Christ was coming 
to us, that Christ was present, that Christ was here, that Christ was coming to be a part of us. And you see in the Bible this idea, come and and do this. You see the early Christians celebrating it, and that's what we're going to do today. Now, how often, what's the position of our church, the Lutheran church? How does this all work? We'll do it a lot. I've noticed God is often not a God of hoops. Do these rights and everything's good. It's not how it works. God isn't running checklists. Did I commune today? Did I do this today? Did I do this today? Do it a lot. Make it a part of your life. And how that filters into to congregational worship, God gives immense freedom in. And some, some they come and they savor it and they do it all the time, even every day. Others do it once a week. Others do it less so. I don't think God much cares. As long as it's a regular part of you. A defining part of you. And may I add, something that goes beyond the five-minute drive-through of getting your wafer and wine. Because what happens here is not just taking place in a quick little rite. It's something that's meant to spur you and define you and change you as you go out. Which means as we come in, we should prepare our hearts. So we're going to commune. Let's do that today. I'm going to invite you to rise. God's not going to force you. He's never going to let up on you but he's not going to force you. And so what he invites us to do is to repent. And I want to invite you to do that right now. Maybe just take a few moments of time with God and say, Lord, here I am, I'm a sinner. I don't follow you, I don't obey you. I am not all that I am supposed to be. Change me. Renew me. Mold me into your image. Maybe you're fighting God on something. He's fighting on you and you're fighting back. Maybe this prayer right now is just saying, God, I I, I surrender. I surrender, I'll do it your way. Communion is about life not just the event. So Lord, here we come. Come to partake of your meal. Renew us and change us. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for when we fight you. Help us to stop. Forgive us for when we're defiant. Help us to stop. Forgive us, God, when, when we are intimidated, cowardly, Fearful, on the fence, uncommitted, and apathetic. And help us to start. Thank you, Lord, for never, ever giving up on us. We pray in your name. Amen.